Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about the life, times, and work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the World War II era Lutheran pastor, moral philosopher, and Nazi resistor who would ultimately give his life for his convictions when he was summarily executed at the Flossenburg concentration camp by orders from the highest echelon of the Nazi party, and that after a multi-year and heroic struggle to preserve the moral and spiritual integrity of the church and its witness in Germany. He and his fellows would largely lose that war but would win many battles, including preserving a small remnant of the church against the uh, moral corruption, uh, the spiritual compromise, and the politicization of the church in Germany. And they did that in a number of ways, and of course that put him at great risk. He was jailed, uh, he became part of a conspiracy, to bring down the Hitler government and would ultimately be executed for that uh, at age 39 in April of 1945. But, of course, uh, there was a very large and complicated context to all of Bonhoeffer's work, and that was, of course, the Nazi regime and its most grotesque uh, expression of its utter, uh, utter and complete uh, moral turpitude, and that was the mechanized mass murder of millions of innocent people in what is commonly referred to now as the Holocaust. And there's a very interesting conference held every year in the United States examining this context of the Holocaust from that period. And that is a backdrop to the Bonhoeffer drama that just can't ever be ignored or uh, underrated. It was a huge part of the context. In fact, you could argue that it was the thing that pulled Bonhoeffer across the line on the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler, uh, again, because of the enormous amount of human suffering and death that was occurring. And uh, that factors in. Uh, we don't have time to explore it here. We will in a future podcast. But in any case, the Holocaust is terribly important all of its own. But when you attach it to the story of Bonhoeffer and his fellows in Germany, uh, it gives their struggle uh, more meaning. And that's why I attended the recent 49th Annual Scholars Conference on the Holocaust and the Churches held at the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. That was March 2nd through 4th of 2019. And while there, I had an opportunity to talk to some of the experts on this question of the Holocaust in general, but also specifically of the churches and their role, uh, both in ameliorating some of the suffering uh, that was occurring during the Holocaust and, sadly, 
also their complicity with it. So this is a very big subject matter. And I was able to sit down with four such experts. I don't want to share those conversations with you. So one of the most meaningful and memorable conversations I had during that experience in Dallas and probably across my 40-year ministry career was uh, the conversation I had with Professor Martin Rumscheidt uh, of the Atlantic School of Theology, where he is professor of historical theology. And he presented on the subject of a search for a theology capable of mourning. He also has a book on that subject, and I talked to him about that in this sitting. So I don't, I don't know that I need to set it up further than that. Uh, Dr. Rumscheidt has a very, very personal connection to the subject of the Holocaust, and you'll hear me ask him about that directly. He is German, grew up in Germany, and uh, I don't want to be a spoiler here. You'll hear me ask him about his personal connection. He brought a very, very emotional presentation to the group. It was hardly academic. It was hardly, uh, you know, impersonal, uh, data research-oriented. This was a personal story of pain and recovery. So listen in as I talk with the inimitable uh, Professor Martin Rumscheidt. Professor Martin Rumscheidt is Professor of Historical Theology at the Atlantic School of Theology and author of A Search for a Theology Capable of Mourning. Professor, I just sat through your talk here at the conference in Dallas, and I must tell you, I felt more like I was in church. Your talk was so deeply spiritual. It was so meaningful, the implications of it so profound. You told very personal stories. And I know you've got to be fatigued because you just spoke to a room full of people and then they all wanted to talk to you afterwards. So it's a work day for you. And I hate to tax you any further and ask you to repeat any of that. But if you're so inclined, you can do so freely. I know all the friends of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute will love to hear your heart on all of this. But I wanted to get to something core, uh, to the heart of your talk, and that is your relationship to your father, who you named as a certain kind of perpetrator uh, within the context of the Holocaust, and how you came to that realization and peace in the aftermath of that realization. This was a very courageous thing to say publicly, and I know you have spoken about it before, but can you talk a little bit about that and go back as far as you wish and start wherever you want to? I refer to my family as uh, 
typical German bourgeoisie, middle class bourgeoisie, which, with which I, through which I wanted to indicate the cultural context of my family, my country at the time. Uh, I am grateful to my parents for an incredibly rich heritage that was part of the German bourgeoisie. Music, theater, art, uh, close personal relationships, parental and, and, and among siblings. So I come out of a household that <clears throat> really was quite okay. It was nevertheless a household in Nazi Germany. And the dreadful thing about the, 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 the power of the Nazis was that it permeated family life. My father's work, uh, high-ranking, well, not high-ranking, he was a chemical engineer, uh, access to the high-ranking executives of IG Farben, many of the names of which I heard in, in household, which now, by the way, are in the University of Frankfurt, that is the old IG Farben headquarters building. And IG Farben being a company that produced chemicals? Chemicals. Including? Particular for medicine, hmm. um, rubber, gasoline, and explosives. All of these derived through chemical synthetic processes. So there was no dependent on natural resources to produce these things. I mean, it would be the triumph of German chemistry. And it wouldn't be surprise me if now the car that I'm driving in New Hampshire, that the tires were made with fact rubbers <laughs> created in the, in the factory there. But that's beside the point. My father was also a very clear uh, worker in the sense that there was, uh, his work demanded his first attention. And so he left the care of the family much, much more to my mother. My, my relationship to my mother was a different one, quite different from, from uh, my father. Although when I told this story about wanting to introduce a Jewish friend, girlfriend to the family, and my father made this particular comment, mother didn't react. So I have to assume that in some sense this was tacit approval of my father's ins insistence. And just to put this in time, we're talking about by the time you make this introduction, it's after the war. Long after the war. Long after the war. It's what, the late 1950s, yep. mm -hmm. early 1960s. Yes, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me make a, 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 sub, a footnote comment to this. Please. <clears throat> um, I, I, I thought my father's comment was, uh, come, came from anti-Semitism, that he had not overcome the German anti-Semitism, and I will still hold to that except now in relation to this comment that he made to me about Sally. Uh, Richard Rubinstein is a close friend of mine, the Jewish theologian, and in conversation with him, he, uh, he said, Martin, I don't think this was anti-Semitism. Think about it this way. Your father probably was aware that if you were going to have children, he was going to have Jewish grandchildren. And that is what he couldn't take. There is some, there's something very persuasive in that, and probably yes. my mother would have thought the same thing. Mm -hmm. 
because my parents were wonderful grandparents, including my own children. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, father paid the full university tuition for all my children for all years, even including postgraduate years. Hmm. Hmm. And, and I would add to that list of credits the fact that he helped to shape you. Yes. That he imparted something to you. Yeah. So this man, it gets very complex because he also gave you as a gift yeah. to the world and to reconciliation. Well, I'll, I'll be happy to include this, this reflection. I, I, I accept it. It's a reflection that you just made. Um, I treasure it. Thank you. Um, because uh, there are times when uh, this ghost of my father comes from behind me and I'm not ready for him again. Uh, I'm not uh, kicking him out of my life. I, I'll keep him there, I want to keep him there for reasons, including the one that you have just mentioned. But it is a relationship with a break. And maybe it is the break which now holds us together. Mm. May sound a bit paradoxical or nonsense. Mm. Mm. Sounds terribly theological, actually. Well, I am a theologian, yes. so uh, let it rip. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the thing that my father and mother gave to me is uh, also an enormous amount of love of classical music. And so I listened to pieces of music that my father would listen to and then I remind myself, yeah, this is Bonhoeffer. He would, he would play this kind of thing. I thought of Bonhoeffer immediately when oh, you said so. this is Carl listening to Mozart every morning before mm. he goes to, gets to work. Mm. Mm. So this thing that those theologians have now given me, and, and in addition to that, others, the seed was laid by my parents. Yes, including, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, <clears throat> Let me tell you about Bart and Bonhoeffer that you, you Please, you because I had to get there yeah, as yeah. quickly as possible, but I did not want to interrupt your yeah, thought. Yeah. My conversation with Bart was... Uh, you studied under him studied directly. Directly, yes. yeah. And I uh, visited him in his wonderful house there on the Bruderholzallee in Basel. And uh, I had asked him to, to, to that I could meet him and that I wanted to talk about the church struggle in Germany, particularly... And so he said, well, uh, what, what, what question do you have? And I said, well, you were in the leading in the opposition and tell me something about the context. And he said, there is so much written about it, I'd rather recommend some books to you. And he said, I want you to read two or three books where you can catch something of the Christian faith that was in resistance. And uh, the first thing he mentioned wasn't Bonhoeffer, it was Dietrich uh, Helmut Gollwitzer. Ah. Uh, Unwilling Journey is the English title. Yes. And uh, he said, try to meet him. Try to meet him. Uh, it will help you. Because... Um, The clear connection that, bon that uh, I want to say Bonhoeffer, and of course it is also Bonhoeffer, the clear connection that Golwitz and Bart and Bonhoeffer and now others made between theology and witnessing to, to the living God, and going, uh, being about the Word of God. He said, once you see that theological connection, uh, 
then you will see the context in the light that I would, I, I'm sure you would like to look at it. And then he said, the next one is, look at how the practice of faith being, uh, or faith seeking to stay in step with God, to quote Martin Luther, um, the actions that follow. And Bonhoeffer describes the obligatory nature of the theological obedience and following and the uncompromising fashion of following Jesus. He said, once you understand that, then you will understand where resistance gets its power from. Mm. Mm. And so uh, <clears throat> I, I got those books. And and, uh, and how old are you at this point? 20, when 26. You're 26. Yeah. And Karl Barth is, uh, is essentially discipling you. <laughs> yes. By giving you this yeah. direction. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by that time, I was already ordained. I see. Um, and I must say this, reading these people, uh, reading and uh, being together with Bart, but now also was right now in my work as uh, seeking a theology capable of mourning. <clears throat> um, Which is a book I want to urge everyone to get and I hope we'll discuss as a community through the Bonhoeffer Institute. We'll talk about yeah. this book of yours. So take note and you'll see folks who are listening, uh, you'll see we'll put a link uh, directly so that you can purchase the book. Let me give you another link. Uh, a number of weeks ago, I was interviewed in uh, New Hampshire by a professor at the uh, University of New Hampshire who teaches how to make documentary films. And uh, he read the book and he interviewed me it is available on YouTube, and it is, a, um, for my judgment, a really good interview. So it's visual and audio. audio. How would we find it? What the link is... Put in your name? No, the, 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 uh -huh. it, it, you can do it more quickly. The link is Theologian Romscheid, and then the title of the book, In Search for a Theology Capable of Mourning. YouTube, and that's where, that's where apparently you will Excellent. find it. Excellent. Yes. I'll be going there on, on my way to the airport. The uh, <clears throat> I, uh, he draws out a number of things of what I was doing in the book and some of the background, but what I wanted to get at <clears throat> in in this work now, I see this uh, my obedience not only to this woman of whom I talked who gave me the commandment to speak. I honor that one, that commandment. A, a, a survivor, a, a camp sur survivor, a camp survivor. Yes, mm -hmm. but I also. Uh, want to express my obedience to the man from Nazareth whom I'm following and the divine commandment to be faithful and to witness. Yeah? And right now I am in the phase and I'm very happy in the phase, in that phase where uh, I listen more to Jewish people when they talk about testimony, and when they talk about faithfulness. And what I love about them is that they don't give me doctrinal statements, but they tell me stories. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and these stories are very powerful, and they are life-giving. Yeah, yeah. And I thank God that you are telling these stories, and we want to repeat them I, I, I will tell you my own momentary story, if I may. 
because it came to mind immediately listening to you today at this conference in Dallas. My father was Jewish, my mother Christian. We were raised with both religions, the four, uh, my three siblings and I, and given a choice. Today I'm a Christian minister, but very much informed by my father's Jewish faith. But he named me for his oldest brother, Captain Robert Leonard Shank, who flew a record number of B-17 bombing missions over Germany and was awarded the uh, Distinguished Flying Cross for that. And on my first visit to Germany, I was overcome with a feeling of guilt vicariously because I knew that his bombs had killed many innocent people. And this came to mind. I'm bearing this man's name. I've always been proud of that, always been honored to have been named for an uncle I never knew, but a brother my father loved dearly and who was revered in the family. And this Jewish man who carpet bombed Europe and particularly Germany and was quite proud of that. And when you were telling the story of being a young boy fleeing those bombs and running for the shelter with your mother behind you, I thought of my namesake, Captain Robert Shank for whom I'm named, could have been dropping some of those bombs. So this all gets very complicated, and your message today of reconciliation, of forgiveness, the way you were embraced by Jews, offered me relief from from that stress that I've experienced, wondering whether to feel good or whether to feel guilt about that family association. So your message echoes out far beyond maybe what what even I know you have quite a breadth of appreciation for the scope of your ministry to the world, but it just touched my heart personally and deeply. So the connection with Bonhoeffer, the connection with my own family story, your relationship with your father, the way all these things are woven together in the prophetic ministry that you have, I don't know how it took me so long to discover you. I'm going to read everything you've ever written. (laughs) I want our friends, our folks to do the same because this is a very powerful and very timely message. So pardon my interruption, but we must go to the heart of the book. What are you hoping readers will get from uh, in search of uh, of, of, of faith capable of, of mourning? I want readers to be able to accept the guilt of the church 
And I want our readers to be able to know that we can live before God knowing our guilt mm. without God forsaking us. Mm. I now quote Bonhoeffer. Yes. When he was involved in the conspiracy, he said, we have to make a choice. We can say, thou shalt not kill or, or don't mur murder not, as I translate that into, in, into English, and don't do anything and we won't kill Hitler. Or, and if we do that, then the murder of Jews will continue, or we kill Hitler. In both cases, we are sinful, but we can live before our God, before God, once we made our decision what we're going to do. And their decision was we're going to kill Hitler. Lost the number of the people in the conspiracy. They said, no, we can't do that. But the voice of the murdered Eberhard Petke in a conversation in the film that way he says, and the killing, the killing, the killing, the killing had to stop. That's Bonhoeffer. I hear Bonhoeffer out of this. That killing had to stop. And so what all we can do is we throw ourselves on the mercy of God with our guilt, with our sinfulness. And <clears throat> that is so liberating. We don't need to have a clear conscience. We would try, yes. But our clear conscience isn't what forgives us. God does that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> That's about as Bonhoeffrian as it can get. And I thank you for that, because that really, I think, gets to the heart of Bonhoeffer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And his theology, his soteriology, and relieves us in the moment of responsibility. Yep. Yep. So, Dr. Martin Rumscheidt, uh, I'm honored to come to know you, to hear your story personally, to know these connections so close to Bonhoeffer, to Barth, and what you now carry to us. I pray God gives you a long life to keep preaching this life-giving message. I'm very grateful for the time you've spent with me, and I hope it's not the last. Well, I'd love to come to Washington. And I intend to invite you. Not and to go to the White House, but to your house. Ah, well, I will be very happy to host you in Washington, and I hope the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute has the pleasure of hearing you lecture for us, so I will be pursuing you on Thank that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you.